that lays out uh, the stuff of biblical Christianity, uh, looking to Christ, having a knowledge about who he is, um, assenting that it's true, but then having some personal connection to it, that it's not only true for others, but having a, a hearty conviction, a heartfelt trust that it's true for me also. Those are the three parts of faith. And then we move to question 22, and I talked about how there was a transition in the catechism uh, happening between question 21 and question 22, a transition from uh, that distinction I made between subjective faith and objective faith. This is the quiz part here. So just by subjective faith, I mean the faith, personal faith, your own personal faith, the faith uh, by which you believe. Um, and then there's objective faith, which is what? The faith not by which you believe, but the faith that is to be believed. Um, that is believed, or that is to be believed. And we talked about, and it's worth risking uh, belaboring the point here the Christian world in which we, we find ourselves in America today and, and not just in America but, but globally has places an overwhelming emphasis on the subjective aspect of faith uh, sometimes to the neglect and detriment of the objective content of faith um, and yet we looked through all of those biblical passages in Philippians and Colossians and Ephesians in order to understand that, that the Bible itself makes this distinction between two different ways of talking about faith uh, and, and very much encourages us, exhorts us um, to take both seriously, to not have one without the other. In fact, you can't really have subjective faith according to the definition of Heidelberg 21 without some knowledge of the things that are to be believed. You have to have some objective content that is to be believed. Um, we circle back and review that because we, I had a great conversation with, with somebody after, after Sunday school last week talking about how do you strengthen and encourage subjective faith? Well, how does subjective faith come? Supernaturally. Uh, it, it comes by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit, working through, through means, the preaching of the word, um, through the supper, sacraments. Um, but if you think about all the exhortations to be strong in the faith, how do you increase the vitality, uh, the strength of, of your subjective faith so that you're not tossed to and fro? You can't work on subjective faith on its own. That's the curious thing. If you want to increase and strengthen uh, and pray that God would, would grow and mature your personal faith, uh, it, it comes by studying the objective things of God. So when a, when a pastor boldly proclaims Christ crucified and you learn in the sermon more about Jesus in the fig tree, and cleaning and cleansing the temple. You learn more of the objective content of the faith 
God uses that means, the instruction, the growth, the knowledge, and ascent, to grow the hearty trust that you have that these things are true, not just for others, but, but for you. Um, a lot of times in evangelicalism, people talk as if subjective faith can be strengthened on its own just by hoping for stronger faith, thinking about stronger faith, without, without trying to learn something. So there's an exhortation uh, in the scriptures uh, to grow in subjective strength of faith uh, by learning, uh, by being built up in, in objective faith. In fact, we won't go back through, through all the passages that we looked at next week, but the metaphors that, that Paul uses in, in, uh, in Colossians and in Ephesians and in Philippians, um, where he talks about uh, objective faith, they're filled usually in the context of, of exhortations, uh, almost almost always. Um, in fact, you see something of the diversity of Paul as a writer that he, he changes his metaphors throughout. So that in in Ephesians, he uses these strong strong verbs to be to stand firm in the objective things of faith and to strive for the objective things of faith. To stand and stand firm and to strive for uh, growth and knowledge of the objective things that are to be believed. In, uh, in Colossians, uh, Paul uses metaphors that are more uh, organic. Uh, I think being rooted, there's kind of organic farming metaphors. Be rooted in, in the objective things of the faith. Um, they're architectural metaphors in, in Colossians as well. Um, be built up in the faith. Be established in the faith, Paul says. Uh, which is an interesting way to sort of think about what we're doing with, with this little study on the Apostles' Creed in the middle of our study of the Heidelberg Catechism. By studying the Apostles' Creed, uh, my kids watch Bob the Builder Unless you have small kids, you wouldn't have any idea who Bob the Builder is. We could talk about Dave the Builder. <laughs> that would be better. By studying the Apostles' Creed, you're being like Bob the Builder. You, you're erecting architecturally the sort of scaffolding of faith. Um, you, you're, you're framing the house and laying a foundation. Uh, Paul uses that in architectural uh, imagery throughout, uh, throughout um, uh, Colossians. Uh, Philippians 2... Uh, it, there's exhortations to grow in the faith. Um, so that's why we, we carry on with this series um, in, in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, Lord's Day 8, that's where we are. Uh, two, two questions, two shorter answers that are still, I think, introductory in nature. So I'll ask the question and then maybe you can r- respond back to me. This is on page 15. In the uh, in the Psalter hymnal, I left my catechism at home because it's a different translation. So now we'll, we'll use the same version together. Uh, question twenty four: uh, How are these articles divided? All right. This is a simple one. This is. This is where I'd be tempted to just rush on past. 
in order to, in order to keep moving. Um, but but it's worth saying just a few things uh, about this. What is this question and answer here? Uh, it's essentially a table of contents for the Apostles' Creed. Um, it it it's breaking things down uh, so that we can have a, even a summary of the summary. The Apostles' Creed is already a summary of the faith. And this is a summary of the summary that amounts to a kind of table of contents. Uh, the first part of the creed, the Father and creation. The second part of the creed, the Son uh, and redemption. The third part, the Spirit and, and, and our sanctification. Uh, it's a kind of, I say a table of contents, is it's a kind of tool to help you navigate your way uh, and find things in the Apostles' Creed that you might might be looking for. It's also worth pointing out that it is, it's a Trinitarian answer. We see the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit each having their special place in a pretty comprehensive uh, story uh, encompassing everything from Genesis to Revelation, creation, deliverance, and sanctification. You know, you might also note here, with this reference to creation, deliverance, sanctification, um, there's a connection to the structure of the Heidelberg Catechism itself in terms of guilt, grace, gratitude. Um, the two are, are related. Guilt, grace, gratitude, in the minds of the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism, comes more explicitly from the Book of Romans. Um, but they certainly had the Apostles' Creed in mind when they laid out the Heidelberg Catechism as well. Um, we use the term guilt, but more generally, uh, the doctrine of man and the doctrine of sin comes out of the, the creation account. Uh, and, and so God the Father and our creation um, also is where you'll find the, the sections on, on, on our guilt. God the Son and our deliverance uh, connection there, of course, to, to, to grace. God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification that's all about the life of gratitude that we have as, as believers. So we have here a summary of the summary uh, in, in question 24. It's, it's comprehensive. It's, it's also simple. I mean, for, for us as believers, there's nothing in our interaction with God that falls outside of the categories of creation, uh, redemption, and, and sanctification. That, that's how comprehensive it is. It includes the whole scope of God's dealings with humanity in, in just a few words. So it's simple and remarkably comprehensive. That, that's the genius of the, of the Apostles' Creed. Okay, question 25. Uh, but since there is but one God, why do you speak of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? All right. Since there is but one God, why do you speak of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because that's how God's revealed himself in his word. These three distinct persons are one true eternal God. Now, this is an interesting question because it anticipates an objection, doesn't it? It, it anticipates 
an objection. It, it suspects that some might imagine a tension between question 24, a summary of the Apostles' Creed, and later creeds that follow, uh, the Nicene Creed or uh, the Chalcedonian Creed. What's the perceived tension? Why, why, what's the objection? Somebody try to state it uh, simply for us. Why is this question here? We, we confess the unity of God. That's what the question's acknowledging. That's a great way of putting it. Um, so confessing the unity of God, why do we ascribe to different persons of the Trinity different uh, acts in, in the world? Creation to the Father, redemption to the Son. If, if this is one God, doesn't the Father also save? Doesn't the Son also create? Doesn't the spirit also there hovering over the waters in Genesis? This is the, this is the kind of question. What, what do you mean? Uh, there's really two questions kind of that we can draw out of, the, out of question 25 here. One question would be, um, what do you mean by these claims in question 24? Uh, that the father creates, the son redeems, and the spirit sanctifies. Do you mean them in an exclusive sort of way? Just the Father creates, just the Son redeems, just the Spirit. How do you mean these claims is kind of the implied, one of the implied questions. And the other implied question is, by what authority do you make these claims about God at all? Uh, that's, a, that's a big question, and, and maybe we should, we should start there. By what authority do we ascribe to God um, certain actions in the world. Uh, how do we know what we know about God? And why do we say what we say about God? That's the question. What does the what does the catechism answer us? Because it's revealed. Because it's revealed. Um, now here, theologians like to make distinctions. Here, there's a, a distinction between general revelation, things that we learn about God from nature, and also special revelation. Um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't die on this hill, but I would argue that here in particular, question 25 has special revelation in mind. We learn about God's existence from nature, and we learn a lot about God's moral qualities because we learn, we learn the moral law by nature. It's, it's in our hearts. Um, and the moral law is, is, a, is a revelation of God's character we see um, we, we learn from the moral law that God is truthful from the commandment, um, right, thou shalt not bear false witness. Um, we learn about God's holiness, his moral perfections are on display in the moral law. So we do learn a lot about God from, from the moral law, from general revelation. But in particular, we, yearn, we learn about God's triunity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, from, from special revelation itself. That, that's, that's why we venture uh, to describe God in certain ways, because of, because of Scripture itself. Um, and we do very cautiously and carefully, knowing that ultimately God is, is, is a mystery. Who God is in himself 
is, is unknowable. That's a strong claim. Who God is in himself is ultimately unknowable unless he reveals himself to us in some way. Since we're making distinctions, we have general revelation and special revelation on the one hand. Here also there's a distinction between who God is in himself and who God is as he's revealed in the scriptures. Uh, and, and this is a distinction that we, that we see in scripture itself. Um, let's, let's look. We have, we have plenty of time. We may only get through question 25 today. Uh, let's look at uh, the book of Hebrews. You know, who asking the question, who or what is God, is, is a dangerous kind of question to ask. Uh, the book of Hebrews, chapter, chapter 12. While you're turning there, uh, let's say something about the Reformation on this question. The Reformers were always a little uncomfortable asking the question, what is God? Philosophers love to ask that question. Um, what is God? What is being? What is essence? What's the essence or being of, of this uh, lectern or of the pews? These are the questions that philosophers love to, love to ask. Um, and as someone who loves philosophy, I, I like to ask them too from time to time. But you've probably all endured a painful lecture at some point about, by a philosopher about what is chairness, talking about a chair and chairness. What's the being of chairness? Well, the reformers were very concerned that people would ask that question about God in ways that were neither biblical nor, nor frankly, edifying. Asking after the whatness of God is a kind of dangerous question, the reformers said, because God's unknowable. You can't know the whatness of God. The, the much more important question is not what is God, um, but who is God, and even more importantly, who is God for us? So, uh, I turned to Hebrews and now I just closed my Bible. So, <laughs> uh, but I'll write this down first. So, um, there's a distinction between God in himself, which you might be tempted to say is the sort of what question whatness of God and who God is uh, for us. The who question. Okay, Hebrews, Hebrews 12. Um, we'll look at a couple of different passages together. Uh, I'm thinking at the very end of the chapter of Hebrews 12. We could start reading, how about verse 25, and we'll read to the end of the chapter here. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At the time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised 
Yet once more, I will, not, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, there may be a number of different things we could say about this passage, but since we're thinking here about uh, the doctrine of God and the Apostles' Creed, well, first, what's the shaking? What's the, what's the reference here that the author of Hebrews is making? What Old Testament? Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, right? Almost one or two times a month we read Exodus 20. We read the law from Exodus 20. Well, the preceding chapter, um, God meets with Moses, and then God meets with the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. And it is a, a terrifying experience. The mountain is covered with smoke. It's shaking. God's answering with thunder. The people are extremely alarmed. And, and in the end, say, enough. Just talk to Moses. We're going to go hide back down at the bottom of the mountain. Well, at the very least, you learn from this, our God is a consuming fire. He's not to be trifled with. Um, it's dangerous to get too close to God, is, is the point. Um, ultimately, who God is in himself is, is unknowable. He's a consuming fire. Uh, another passage would be 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy 6. So just a few, few pages back. Uh, how about start reading? We'll start reading on at verse 11 of 1 Timothy 6. We'll read through verse 15 or 16. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. There, by the way, is a reference to the object of faith. Um, confessio is to say, I confess, I believe. Credo, credo means, I believe. So here's a reference to Christians making the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Um, that's how the ancient church used the Apostles' Creed. It's how we continue to use the Apostles' Creed um, to today. Carrying on uh, from verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things... And of Jesus Christ, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unsustained, uh, unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. We can stop there. Well, there's, I mean, this is a rich...
passage, not only do we see Christians, the pattern of Christians making the good confession, um, but, but we're following the example of Christ who made the good confession before, um, before Pontius Pilate. But then when we come to the doctrine of God, we learn about precious attributes and characteristics uh, of our Heavenly Father. But they're all pushing in the direction of, this is one not to be trifled with. This is one who, in his sheer divinity, is, is uh, uh, unapproachable. He, he dwells in, in unapproachable light. He alone has immortality. He's the only blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. To him be honor and, and eternal dominion. He is in control of everything. That's who God is, is in himself. Those are a few characteristics that are revealed here by Paul about who God is in himself. He dwells in unapproachable light. Um, that's, that's something about who God is in himself. But how about who God is um, for us? Uh, well, we could look at uh, Isaiah, we could look at, let's look at Isaiah quickly. Isaiah chapter 42, 43, 44, we could look anywhere there. It's good to tour, tour through the scriptures here. Uh, let's look at Isaiah 43. Because there we see a little bit of, of both who God is in him for it, who God is in himself and, and who God is for us. Um, Forty three verses eleven, verses ten. We can start at verse ten here. Um, Chapter 43, verse 10. You, you are my witness, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am here. Now here we'll get uh, a, a statement of um, the otherness, the singular uniqueness of, of God um, and who he is in himself. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And I am God, and henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? This is a rich passage about who God is in his Sovereignty and his divinity, his eternality, his omnipotence. But implied also are these remarkable prog- uh, promises about declaring and saving and proclaiming. So switch over to the, a little few passages later in the, in the end of the chapter here to verse, verse 25. Um, he isn't just aloof and all-powerful. He is also a God who does very particular things for us, for his people. I, I am he, he says in verse 25, who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. 
Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to, to reviling. Um, he doesn't just remain aloof. He comes sometimes powerfully in judgment, but also powerfully in, in redemption. Um, there's maybe a better passage in uh, skip back a chapter in Isaiah. i reading through Isaiah a little bit of late. So this is fresh in my mind. Chapter 42, um, verses 6, uh, through a few verses later. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So throughout the scriptures, um, you can see God declaring who he is in himself and standing aloof in his holiness and also indicating quite powerfully that he nonetheless covenants with us. He, he stoops down to meet with us. One of Calvin's favorite passages um, that, that perfectly captures this distinction is in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 29. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Uh, uh, in Deuteronomy 29, 29, we read, uh, For the hidden things belong to the Lord, but the revealed things belong to us and to our children forever. There is a very clear distinction between what's hidden, who God is in himself, they belong to the Lord. And, and yet, God stoops down and, and accommodates to us. He reveals himself to us. And they, those things belong to us and to our, to our children Forever. So there's a, a, an understanding of, of this distinction and also uh, a recognition that when God comes to us to reveal things about himself, who he is, um, it's, it's accommodated. We talk a lot about this from time to time uh, because it's, it's important to understand. What we have in, in the scriptures is God um, stooping down from his uh, a lofty throne in the heavens and, and talking in baby talk to us. Calvin loved that phrase. He, he refers to uh, Revelation and, and the scriptures as God's baby talk to us. Even Calvin uh, talked about baby talk. Uh, that's, what the, that's what the Bible, God is so unknowable that even this, which lays out manifold perfections of God, is with, it's filled with rich sections about, about who God is. Even this is just, it's just baby talk, um, which, is, which is pretty remarkable. Um, God loves us uh, so much that he wants a relationship with us. and He, he stoops down and, and, and talks to us just like we talk to our little kids or our, our little puppies. We just got a puppy in our, in our house. This is a story with absolutely no point at all, but I feel you should know that we just got a puppy in our house, uh, a little French bulldog. He's only 12 weeks old. We named him Gaspard uh, after the French Huguenot admiral who was assassinated by the Roman Catholic 
uh, Catherine de' Medici. Um, so he said he died a martyr's death. Um, and our little puppy, uh, we named him after him, Gaspard. What's funny is we've, we thought, you know, our, our, our youngest is three, and we try not to talk in baby talk to our youngest because you feel like, okay, move along, buddy. Gotta, we're going to talk to you like a, a little man and uh, speed along the learning process. But as soon as the puppy entered the house, just immediately, everyone talks in baby talk to the puppy. It's pretty remarkable. I mean, just embarrassing in front of other adults. Oh, little, little puppy, little puppy. Um, he's got nicknames and all the rest. Um, uh, well, that, that, something like that, not to trivialize what we have in the scriptures, but um, that's how God regards us. In fact, we're not unlike French bulldogs, extremely stubborn and very slow to learn um, and making a mess of everything. Uh, I should probably stop with the analogies there. He, he makes a mess. He's not, he's not body trained. Uh, there are lots of problems there. Um, French bulldogs are very gassy. Uh, so we call them little, little gassy, little Gaspard, gassy Gaspard. Anyways, um, don't report this to Reverend Brown, please. Uh, it's, it's too late. Uh, it's too late. Uh, where were we? Um, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The, the hidden things belong to the Lord. The revealed things belong to us and to our children forever. Um, so this is God's accommodated baby talk uh, to us little stubborn French bulldogs. Well, what does he reveal about himself? Um, this gets us back to the, to the sort of anticipated objection between question 24 and 25. What does God reveal about himself? He reveals that he is one. The Lord our God is one. But he also reveals that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And more than that, ascribes to uh, the different persons a kind of special and unique role in his works in the world. Um, So while it's true that the Son, John 1, John 1 verse 3, that the Son... By him all things were made that were made. So while it's true that the, that the Son was there at creation and played a role in creation, um, the scriptures uh, on the whole reveal that, that the Father has a unique role as the fountain origin of all things. And so when we make these claims in, in, in Heidelberg 24 that the Father, uh, God the Father, is, 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 uh, is assigned uh, the creation tasks, Um, we don't mean them sort of exclusively to exclude the other members of the Trinity because of John 1. The Father was there. The Spirit was there hovering over the waters. And yet, uniquely, especially, the persons of the Trinity have their own unique works so that uh, the Father certainly desires to save and redeems us, John John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. The Father is certainly there, active in creation. And yet there's a special role that the Son plays. It is only the Son, not the Father or the Spirit, who becomes a ransom for many. It is only the Son who becomes incarnate. Uh, so we find, we find both these things revealed uh, in, in scriptures. Uh, we could cite numerous passages to think through the doctrine uh, of, of the Trinity. Uh, 
try to leave some time for questions. So Matthew 28, the baptismal, uh, the Great Commission, certainly indicates Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is a clear conception of the Trinity um, there in Matthew in Matthew 28. Um, one of my favorite benedictions is Second uh, Corinthians, Second Corinthians 13. Let me turn there briefly. It's not only a wonderful benediction, um, but like all good benedictions, it's it's uh, beautifully Trinitarian. Second uh, Corinthians thirteen verse fourteen. Um, all the saints greet you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Uh, a clear reference to all. It's not just that the Father is the only one who loves and, and the Spirit is the only one who grants fellowship, uh, but from other passages we know there's a special role that each of these persons play with these, with these tasks, the grace of the Lord Jesus and love of the Father and fellowship of the Spirit. But they're all there mentioned together in, in Trinitarian harmony uh, quite, quite beautifully. What other passages uh, would we look, where, where would we look to see not just a reference to the complete Trinity, Matthew 28, 2 Corinthians would be examples where there's um, all of the persons mentioned in a kind of Trinitarian uh, 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 formula. But where would we look for clear biblical teaching about the distinction of the persons? Ephesians 1, um, first one that popped to my mind would be, would be the Gospel of John. Just read through the whole Gospel of John. Um, this afternoon, or sit down and start reading from John chapter 14, uh, the upper room discourse, through the end of chapter 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. Uh, and, and be amazed at the way, the, the way that, that Jesus talks about um, the relationship that he has with the Father and how he and the Father will send the Son. And once... Christ leaves to go be with the Father. He will ask the Father, and the Father will send the Spirit as our comforter. It's a a remarkable section of Scripture where you see clear distinctions between um, between the persons. So that the unity of the Godhead um, doesn't doesn't uh, erase or dissolve the distinctions of the persons. They're they're clearly there as well. Um, 1 Corinthians 8, I think, is... Uh, is First Corinthians eight cited here as one of the the texts? Um, no, but we'll we'll see one more pattern here, and then and then take uh, take some questions. First um, Corinthians eight, verse six, I think gives us a very helpful biblical pattern for how to talk about the harmony. Of the God's head's actions in the world, but also preserving a distinction of the persons and personal actions. Um, chapter eight, verse. So I'll start reading at verse four. The passage in the context about food being offered to idols, and and Paul is teaching that, that God is quite different than idols. Uh, so therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, in quotes, and, and, and many lords, in, in quotes, 
Yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Uh, the pattern here, this language, is, is throughout the Reformed confessions and throughout the best, uh, the best confessions in the Christian tradition and, and the creeds themselves. Here's where we have the language that all things come from the Father, through the Son, and in the power or by the power of the Spirit. It's a way to talk about trinity and unity together um, and, and to make some, some distinctions there. So, since there, are, uh, since there is but one God, why do you speak of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? The answer, because that is how God has revealed himself in his word. We're not making this up, but we feel compelled to confess this as our faith because scripture itself reveals both the unity of the Godhead um, and, and the harmony of their actions together in creation, redemption, and, and sanctification, and also clearly reveals that there are distinct persons are acting together. Um, that's what we say uh, when we confess these things. That's what we, we mean, the biblical pattern, from the Father, through the Son, and, and by the Holy Spirit. Let's take questions there. Um, we didn't quite make it to Lord's Day 9, but Lord's Day 9 is, is, should be treated just all on its own. Um, there we're right into the thing, the, the stuff of creation. Um, any thoughts or questions about uh, about Questions 24 and 25. Uh, so when God reveals himself to us, uh, you know how like for Moses it was in the form of fire, and then in Mount Sinai he also revealed himself, and um, I guess to like all the prophets he did also reveal himself, but like uh, when he does, is it all three of them at the same time, or is it is it some parts are hidden and some are not, and how do we distinctify like which ones are shown and which ones are Good, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, it's not, not typical that, uh, that all, all three persons of the Trinity are, are revealed, um, especially God as Father um, uh, is, is, is and remains spirit and invisible. Um, and, and when God reveals himself to us, he uses, you know, means. Um, so... There's a difference of opinion here. So, some would say uh, that theophanies in the Old Testament, appearances of God in the Old Testament, are, are almost always Christophanies. In other words, um, it's not that the Father necessarily appears. Um, there may be one or two exceptions to that. But, but typically it's the Son, the pre-incarnate Son, um, before coming and taking on the flesh, uh, and being born of the Virgin Mary, that even in the Old Testament, that the, that the eternal person of the Son reveals himself and is somehow made, made manifest. Um, how is the Spirit present in, in a Christophany? Um, the Spirit is present there by his action, by his agency. Um, and so uh, some would say, uh, I think I'm on solid ground saying this, that um, it's, it's the Son, the eternal person of the Son who is revealed in the Old Testament. In, in these different Christophanies. Um, and it happens by the Spirit and because of the will of the Father. So they're all involved in this action, but it may be only the Son who's, who's, who's revealed. I mean, that, that, that question, 
I think raises a good point on which to conclude here. These are incredibly mysterious things that are very difficult um, to, to nail down. In fact, we can't, we can't nail them down. Um, what we have to appreciate is that the, that the scriptures give us much to work with and give us things that we can definitively say about who God is. Who God is, as he's revealed himself to us, is, is not, is not um, mysterious. We, we can have confidence in, in scriptural revelation. These things are, are true. But that's the, that's the wonderful thing about the Apostles' Creed. Um, I'll stop with this. Uh, incredibly complex things are being, are being summarized here. There's a kind of simplicity to the Apostles' Creed so that adults can learn it and, and my own little children can learn it. They get assent and descent confused and say them backwards almost every time. <laughs> um, they're not words that you come across very often in cartoons. <laughs> oh, we try to teach our children other things as well. Um, but but our, it's so simple that children can learn it. Uh, that's how simple and beautiful a summary it is of, of the objective faith. And yet each phrase of the Apostles' Creed, uh, there's a depth to it that is quite remarkable. Um, and that's why the Apostles' Creed has, has stood the test of time. It isn't biblical or scriptural itself. It didn't come from the Apostles. But it stands the test of time because it is so simple. And yet each phrase is like a placeholder or, or um, a tab on a, on a file. Each phrase of the Apostles' Creed is like a little, a little label on a file. If you open up the file, you delve into the mystery of the Trinity and pretty quickly come to uh, acknowledge the, the, the mystery of the Godhead. Um, so there's depth and simplicity both, both there in the Apostles' Creed. That's why uh, I, I think we're like two minutes past by, by my time, but maybe we could ask, we can have a question after. Uh, why was it, we never got to Bible we see as one book, but it really without God's revelation of many, many authors, we would never understand this as we do. I mean, you look at look at other religious books of the Mormon or the Quran, the supposed revelation through one person, and it's It's a testimony to the divine inspiration of Scripture, the, the way in which it all holds together, and yet each author is writing things that are beyond them. It is, it is remarkable. Um, all right, let's let's pray, um, and then we'll be dismissed. Oh, uh, uh, three and one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, we we marvel uh, and worship you, uh, though we do not fully grasp uh, or understand the the mystery uh, of your of your personal intra-trinitarian relations, um, and yet we're grateful that you've stooped down to us. You've revealed yourself to us as our creator and sustainer of all things, uh, as our redeemer, uh, the one, the lamb who was slain, uh, who was given up uh, for the sins of many, uh, and also our comforter and our sanctifier, the one who applies the work of Christ to us. Uh, Be with us this day, Father, uh, and grant us uh, the grace of the Lord Jesus and and more of your love for us as Father and more uh, of the fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit.